Well, it is the top of the hour, so we're going to get started. Welcome to the Global Math Department, everyone. My name is Lena Taro, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight, we're going to be hearing from four people, Annie Forrest, Raymond Johnson, Sharon Vestel, and myself about NCTM favorites. Would everyone please introduce themselves in the chat, telling us what you teach, where you teach, and what your Twitter handle is, if you have one. I know we definitely have a lot of familiar uh, faces and names here tonight. And I agree, Francis, that it is another beautiful day in Pennsylvania. And I know a lot of us are definitely busy closing out our school year. Um, if you're um, in the United States, I know often we have people here from places other than the United States. So if I say good night, um, it's probably morning or afternoon, maybe where you are. So our speakers will be introducing themselves tonight. Um, but before we get started, let me explain how these meetings work. These meetings are recorded and are available within 24 hours after the meeting ends. To view the recording, you can use the same URL you used to get here tonight. The Global Math Department community prides itself on being friendly and supportive. The chat room is available for topical and general conversation throughout the meeting. I'll be sure to catch your questions for the presenters. So don't worry that the presenter won't notice your question in the chatter. And so tonight we are doing NCTM favorites and our presenters are Annie Forrest, Raymond Johnson, Sharon Vestal, and myself, Lee Natero. And so I am going to turn off my web camera and invite Annie to turn on her web camera so that we can get started. Oh, there we go. Hi everyone, um, Annie Forrest, and I am a K-8 math coordinator in Illinois. I'm also the Illinois Council of Teachers of Mathematics president. Um, I see Matt is on here and he helps with social media for ICTM, so hi friend. Um, so I'm gonna be sharing, I, I kind of um, focused my watching of some of the on-demand presentations from NCTM annual um, around more of the elementary sessions um, and then some of the coaching leadership ones. Um, so I'm gonna share a few of my favorites from that, but I also will share, because I'm a former middle school math teacher, um, some of the ways that even these primary sessions that I watched, um, I would imagine using them um, all the way through eighth grade um, and maybe even beyond. So hopefully it appeals to um, everybody that is here tonight to learn. Um, Okay, so the first session um, I watched or that I'm going to share about was one of the leadership ones. Um, and I liked this. So this is from um, Jacqueline Van Oyek. Um, I practiced saying her name a few times to make sure I got it right. I guess she recently got her um, doctorate. And this was a presentation where she was sharing um, about the research that she did um, in her dissertation. So um, I thought it was really important work. Well, first of all, in this slide, she kind of talked about this idea of ambitious mathematics practices, and I'd never heard um, it called ambitious mathematics practices, so that kind of drew me in um, from the beginning. But you can see sort of how she talked about um, traditional versus this ambitious idea. Um, and so that appealed to me because those are the type of classrooms that I wanted to have when I was in the classroom. 
um, that I want to see as I go into teachers' classrooms. Um, but her research really focused on, um, oh, and then there was a couple more criteria that she had here. Um, just this idea of equity and participation, just students are talking um, and that teachers play a, a role in orchestrating that. So kind of that facilitating role um, and, you know, not telling students. So a, a type of classroom that a lot of us want to have. Um, the thing that I thought was special about this presentation was it was talking about this role of administrators in helping to foster these types of classrooms. Um, and I have found myself in lots of different situations with administrators, some super supportive, some wanting to be supportive, but not quite understanding what I was looking to do in a math classroom. And so that's why this interested me because I was, I was thinking about what could I do to help that happen? Um, as a teacher, because sometimes you you don't feel super empowered, um, and this felt really empowering. So anyway, um, here were some ideas around what administrators can do. Um, I loved this last bullet point: participate in professional development. Um, if you have an administrator who who has a background um, in you know literacy or is just more comfortable with reading, um, they might choose to attend those type of PDs. So really encouraging professional development around mathematics for um, administrators, I thought was an important idea. Um, and then I love that she kind of went into this idea of like, what can math leaders or math teachers do to encourage um, some collaboration with administrators and advocate um, so that we can get more of the type of classrooms that we want in our schools. So um, I think I should also mention that these um, slides are in the handouts, um, which I think is nice because I'm not really reading through every single bullet point, but if you're interested in this, I thought it was really good work and it might be something that you wanna come back and look at later um, if you're not able to go and watch her entire presentation um, on the NCTM platform. Um, so again, I just loved this idea too. This just felt super empowering to me um, to be thinking about how I'm communicating the why, um, how I'm working on setting goals um, for my evaluation for myself. I'm working on setting goals that um, encourage these type of practices and collecting data around that idea. Um, so I loved this session for myself as an educator, but then also as I work with teachers, um, thinking of ways to empower them to um, work with their administrators to have the type of classroom that they want to have. Okay, so that was my first session I wanted to share. I have two more. Um, so this one was in the K2 strand. Um, and I will say there was 25 sessions in the K2 strand, which wasn't the, the most, like some of the strands had maybe 100 sessions. Um, this one definitely, uh, K2 had 25. Um, I did watch them all. I will say that you can speed up, like on the NCTM platform, you were able to on-demand sessions, you could speed them up. So I watched them at like two times the speed sometimes, or kind of skimmed through um, to find my favorites. But I did watch all 25, and so I'm sharing with you my two top favorite of all the K2 sessions. Um, so this one is from um, Kathy Marks Kirpan, and um, she's on Twitter. So if you are interested in following her, um, she shared a bunch of ideas that were really good. But my favorite idea she shared was this idea of concept circles, which she borrowed from the literacy um, world, and she's using it for mathematics. 
So this idea is you put um, something in the center. So here's an example of putting um, something in the center and then around the edge, I think it says, it's kind of small for me to see, but I think it says like, what does two more look like or three less? And so students, she printed them on large sheets of paper and then students worked collaboratively to fill in the parts around the outside of the circle, um, depending on what those little yellow post-it notes said. Um, so that was one way that she was sharing that she used it. Um, here's another one. Um, this was, you know, primary students again. So 10 is in the center. And then she just got out a bunch of manipulatives. And you can see that students were representing the value of 10 with these different materials um, and in different ways, kind of in the different spots around the circle. Um, she also showed um, using chalk and drawing one of these concept circles outside. Um, so let's say you put three in the center and then students were finding things like rocks, like three rocks or three leaves um, and putting that around. So I thought that was a really neat idea for sort of an outdoor hands-on kind of public math um, approach. Uh, to these concept circles. And then just because I am a middle school teacher at heart, um, she shared one example that had fractions. Um, so this is if you do teach upper grades, um, an idea of how you might want to use a concept circle. So in the center um, was a value and then around the edge you can see um, the, those different fractions. So um, I thought it was a really innovative idea um, something that was really simple, like you could use the same concept map with a lot of different things. Um, and then again, I loved the idea of doing it outdoors um, with the chalk. So wanted to share that idea. And then the, the third session I'm going to share, um, I think I was really feeling this like public math idea, this um, like how can we um, really spark joy um, in math? And maybe it's just, you know, we're living in this COVID time of remote and I'm just looking for creative ways to just spark a little joy. Um, so I watched this session by Molly Daly. Um, if you're not familiar with her work, she's um, involved in public math. Like if you go to publicmath.org, um, they do some work around bringing joy to math and putting it out, putting math out there in the world for people to do um, in a public setting. It's not always about uh, school math. And so she was talking about how can we make schools um, math curious places. And so she had some images here, like here's an example of like a garden and what math do you see here and how might children interact with this space and think about math. Um, she talked about what it takes to mathematize a space, um, to notice that children are mathematizing, to try to elicit more conversations, and then to co-create those spaces with students. And so she talked through that. Um, I love the idea of like partnering, um, even with our youngest mathematicians um, on creating those spaces. And then she just gave some ideas. All of these have to do with math, playing, counting, measuring, locating. I think about my own, if anybody has their own um, kids at home too. I have a um, young kids at home. And so just finding ways to really spark joy and really mathematize things that are play um, was inspiring. So I wanted to, so she kind of talked about um, public math. So if you go to publicmath.org, um, there's lots of resources there and ideas. Um, there's these really cool 
things that you can download if you um, onto your phone. And if you take a picture, you can put these frames around it or like, what do you notice? What do you wonder? They're like little stickers that you can put on um, to pictures that you take. So that's pretty cool. And then she also um, has this uh, website, Math Anywhere. Um, I think it's mathanywhere.org um, with ideas as well um, on how to mathematize um, spaces. Um, so lots of ideas. So even if you weren't able to watch her entire session, um, these resources can um, can help you if you wanted to explore it a little bit more. Again, this isn't just for primary. This, I mean, I could imagine lots of ways to mathematize um, our spaces for all, I mean, even adults, right? So um, this was an example of a crossover project between the Math Anywhere and Public Math was this hexagon challenge. You can download this and then you cut out the pieces and then try to cover up the hexagon in different um, interesting ways. Um, so again, for really any learners um, could probably enjoy doing something like that. So those were my three favorites. Um, I hope that you find some value in it. Again, uh, I think all, uh, at least the two last people I shared are both on Twitter too. So they're, they're definitely two people that you might want to follow, uh, Molly and um, Kathy, to, to you know, learn from them further too. So. Now it's my turn. Hello, everyone. My name is Raymond Johnson, and I am the Mathematics Specialist at the Colorado Department of Education. And I work in an office called the Office of Standards and Instructional Support, and that's what I spend a lot of my time doing each day, is working with standards and curriculum policy uh, and ways of helping teachers. And so those are the kinds of things that I look for when I go to a conference. Uh, I've been attending NCTM annual meetings since 2008. Um, that was in my capacity as a teacher. Later, when I went to graduate school, I attended annual meetings as a PhD student, and now I attend them as a state math specialist. And I realize now that when I attend the NCTM annual meeting, I am not the target audience for that conference. Uh, certainly, NCTM has a broad program that they put together, and I can always find things that I'm looking for. Um, but I'm, I'm more aware that that conference really needs to cater to teachers first, um, because it is the Council of Teachers of Mathematics, not just for folks like me. We have our own organizations. Um, so I go to that conference thinking about things that I can get out of it for myself, but also to try to step into the shoes of a teacher or maybe a uh, like a district math coach or an, a coordinator and see what they might be getting out of the conference as well. Now, uh, all of you probably have varying experiences with conferences, but many conferences have strands. And I, I looked at the annual meeting strands for the, the conference coming up in Atlanta this fall. And these kinds of strands that they have listed here, broadening the purposes of learning and teaching math, uh, effective math teaching practices, these kinds of strands really help the program committee solicit the kinds of proposals that they want to build uh, a, a program with certain flavors in it. And I have paid attention to these strands when I go to conferences, but 
usually I don't because I think uh, giving this presentation and having to think through my favorite sessions from the conference has given me a different, uh, it's given me a reason to think about the way I mentally organize conference sessions. And I think I think of it this way. So within every one of these annual meetings, uh, I broke this down to seven different categories. And if you ask me next week, maybe it would be six or maybe it would be eight. But this week it's these seven that there are these teacher-teacher sessions, um, usually with a lot of enthusiasm about something that's probably not new to me, but maybe it's new to them. And it's just fun to go to one or two of those um, at an annual meeting, not because I'm going to immediately turn around and use it the next day in a classroom, but it's, it's one of the great parts of having the conference. Similarly, the trainer teacher, that's usually like district level people who have been doing this PD and now they're turning around and presenting it at the conference. A lot of the equity oriented sessions I put under the why is greater than how category. Um, they're, tr they're trying to convince you of the great need to take a different perspective or approach in teaching mathematics. And maybe it's less about exactly how you're going to do it. Certainly, there are vendors and people who build things that they have a product that they want to pitch to you, even if it's not something they're trying to sell. Uh, now, I would say those top four categories, that's really what the core of the annual meeting is about. You know, if you go to every one, the, the majority of the sessions would fit into those four categories because those are the ones that the intended audience, teachers, uh, probably get the most use out of. I tend to hover towards the last three categories. Uh, people who dig into policy, um, that could be standards or other things, but they're interested in sort of building an educational infrastructure. Um, that's right up my alley. And then because of my years as a graduate student, I really like going to research-based sessions. And sometimes it's very researchy, Sometimes it's a researcher who does a nice job of translating their current research into a teacher-focused presentation. So that's where I have this difference between the junior scholars who are usually excited to tell you about the thing that they're currently working on. And then I put a star next to senior scholar because this is the one favorite of the favorites that I'm going to spend the most time talking about is when you get that veteran um, sometimes they're retired. Uh, the ones I have in mind from, from this year, that's, it's a retired professor who um, is looking back on decades of their career and they're able and willing to distill down into a one hour session the, the essential things that they feel people need to do to move part of the, you know, to, to move the field forward. So I am going to go through these quickly one by one. I've picked a favorite for each category. And I'll just spend a little extra time on the last one. So teacher to teacher, I didn't go to many of these, but this one was fun. So Emily Ann McDonald, she's a high school teacher. Uh, I can't remember how many years of experience she had, but she went through 10 online resources. And there were a couple in there I hadn't heard of. You know, she spent plenty of time on Desmos and some other things that I had heard of. But these kinds of sessions, uh, it's very informative, particularly at the end of the pandemic and knowing that some of this technology got used more and in different ways than teachers probably had used it in the past. So I thought this was a nice example of a teacher presenting to another teacher. 
about stuff that excites them when they use it in their classroom. The trainer to the teacher. Now, this one I wasn't sure about. I thought this one might be a why is greater than how session because many equity sessions are. But Gail Boyd from Murfreesboro City Schools did such a nice job. There was plenty of why in there, but she had certain frameworks of looking at culturally responsive teaching. She was um, taking moments throughout her presentation to tie aspects of culturally responsive teaching to the eight effective math teaching practices. And we had time to discuss that a little bit and see where intersections were. Um, she talked specifically about getting to understand cultures and some cultural norms uh, that are useful for teachers to know. And I, I just thought this one was really well um, presented. And if I saw her come up on a program again, I think I would I would track her down. I, I don't think I'd heard of her before the before I'd gone to this session. Under the why is greater than how, uh, Jose Wilson's uh, opening keynote was really good. And I'm not going to say much about it because I know Sharon is going to talk about it uh, when she shares her favorites. But Jose is a great presenter, and uh, he had a nice mix of, of mixing in mathematics with some personal history and some stressing about the importance of students, and um, that made it my favorite in this category. The product pitch. Uh, I don't know about the rest of you. I, I choose these very carefully. I, I don't go to a lot of vendor presentations. And this one, I will admit, I am biased. I am a graduate of CU Boulder. This is a project from CU Boulder. This is from the FET project. Uh, FET is uh, probably best known in science for their science simulations. But Amanda McGarry is the person in the FET project who focuses full-time on math simulations. And I'd seen her present in the past about some simulations that were more appropriate for middle school and high school math. But I thought it would be fun to go to a session that was focused on elementary math. And I see the, the link to the FET website is in the chat. FET has a great backstory. Um, Carl Wyman, uh, years ago, won the Nobel Prize in physics while he was at CU Boulder. And he used part of his Nobel Prize money to start developing these online simulations that they could use in teaching science in the K-12 environment. And that project grew and it attracted more funding and it's gone through iterations over the years in the, in the style of the simulations um, and the technology behind them. They've, they've worked hard to move on from Flash and Java to having things that are HTML5 based that work in browsers and on tablets and phones nicely. And the ones that we got to play with for early learners, uh, these were not ones I had seen before. And the one that I grabbed in the little um, thumbnail of this slide was simply about building easy fraction models. And so you have pieces that you can drag and drop and you can change the size of the pieces and you can see what happens if you adjust your numerator and your denominator. And I think every FET simulation I've ever seen, there's always sort of an open exploration phase of the simulation, but then it goes on to targeted tasks that increase in difficulty. And there's, uh, there's a ton of teacher 
lesson plans and resources and materials in lots of different languages that they go along with the materials that they have there. So uh, as a as a buff from CU Boulder, I'm I'm proud of the FET project, and it was really cool to see some of the the new things that they had developed and some of the things that they have, particularly for early elementary. For junior scholar, um, this I could have put this in the trainer to teacher um, segment also, but these presenters, um, Amber Grace Candela, Julie Dixon, and Melissa Boston, you know, these are all like researchers, university faculty members in their prime, doing great work. And um, I've particularly followed Melissa's work for quite a while. Um, she helped us out on a research project I was on when, when I was a grad student. And it's been really interesting to watch how the, the research work that she did to assess instructional quality in mathematics to give researcher tools to give researchers tools to assess instructional quality now has been uh, refined and simplified in some ways and formulated in other ways that really do a nice job of uh, attending to how teachers interact with the tasks that they use and how they uh, conduct classroom discussions. So, you know, if you're familiar with this space, you know there's like a half a dozen probably major books about um, about classroom discourse and talk, uh, you know, like Five Practices from Smith and Stein and, and others like that. Um, but some of the frameworks and rubrics that uh, Melissa and Julie and Amber are working with in this um, I, I think they hit a really nice balance of not overcomplicating things while still capturing enough detail to give teachers the feedback they need to get better at what they're doing. Um, some of the, some other frameworks for, for discussions, they just have too many, too many levels and too many dimensions and too many different kinds of question types or too many different talk moves. And you get bogged down in the classification and the sorting of things. And I just feel like, um, the work that these these three have done um, get past some of those things. So lastly, that leaves senior scholar, the one that I wanted to talk about most. Um, Mike Shaughnessy uh, could present about any number of things. He's a legend in the statistics education community. I think in the NCTM research handbooks, he's written the main statistics chapter for all three versions that have come out since the early 90s. He's a past NCTM president. He's an NCTM Lifetime Ach uh, Achievement Award recipient. But when I saw this session, you know, and he boils it down, it's the two most important things in statistics education. I thought, okay, I'm not going to pass that up. I want to see what Mike says are the two most important things. And so he had a plan for the presentation. And I think one presenter perk that Mike got that others don't get is that he was able to do his Zoom session as a meeting, not a webinar. So we were interactive and in breakout rooms, which is not the case usually in uh, NCTM presentations. That's something I'd like for them to think about and work on for the future to make some of the sessions more interactive. So to summarize some of the things that he talked about, and I'm not going to read this whole slide to you, but he has a wonderful perspective about the history of research and practice and statistical and statistics education. 
statistics is still relatively new. It didn't really show up in curriculum until maybe the 60s or 70s. And then even well into the 1980s, all the statistics education you were likely to get was probably mean, median, mode range, maybe a little bit more, but that was the core of it. And when the 1989 NCTM standards came out, um, it highlighted statistics in some ways. And at the secondary level, it made some really bold things like students should be doing hypothesis testing and curve fitting. And I put a little exclamation points after those there because not only was that bold for 1989, it really overestimated teachers' preparedness to teach those things in high school. Um, particularly in 1989 when the technology we now take for granted wouldn't have been available for them uh, to do some of the work that we would certainly do now. Uh, things were still evolving around 2000. Uh, the term distribution did not show up in NCTM's materials until the 2000 standards when distributions um, introduced in regards to sampling distributions. So there's been a tension there where a lot of schools, mean, median, and mode was their statistics unit. <laughs> Uh, and teachers weren't prepared for it. But as we've been pushing for more data literacy and statistics education, um, trying to shift teachers away from just focusing on measures of center and getting them to think about variability. So he led us through a number of tasks to have us think about variability in a number of ways. And if you don't teach a lot of statistics, or maybe even if you do, you might think, oh, variability, that's like when you get into standard deviation, right? That's high school stuff. But still, there's, there's things that you can do at the elementary level. And so there was a sample task here with, uh, you know, imagine candies in a jar and you got to pull out 10. Just what would you predict? What's the balance of red candy versus yellow candy? And so we had these nice discussions in our breakout rooms about how some students might just think if there's two colors, you're going to get half of one and half of the other. Or some students might think that you could get any number of any color because it's random, right? Um, these are things that we have to learn and reason with as, um, as individuals. And so students need opportunities to experiment with variability. And at the youngest ages, it's a matter of counting. And then of course, as they get older and they develop more understanding, you can apply certain measures to them. So the big ideas that he wanted us to walk away from this session with was that the two biggest ideas in statistics are distribution and inference. So look beyond measures of center, get into distribution. Students need to interpret them. They need to be able to create them distributions tie in a number of other ideas, including measures of center. And sampling distributions in particular are, are so at the core of, um, of inference, which is the other big idea, that spending a fair amount of time reasoning with sampling distributions is very important. And he had some recommendations. I think he was really rushing here at the end to, to fit these in. Uh, but the recommendations, yes, start with getting students to think about generating statistical questions, asking statistical questions that drive them to collect the data and analyze the data. 
there's so many rich things you can do in statistics. It's, it's uh, almost malpractice to do statistics out of context, although I have seen it done. But, you know, it should come from questions that students can answer about the world around them. And then the, the part on the right is so important, too. There's still a lot of teachers who did not have the level of statistical preparation that maybe we need to really move forward on statistics education. And so he was, he was making that point, and there are resources available, like NCTM's Essential Understanding series, that can help if you don't already know or if you just want to sharpen your skills. You can look to some of those books that are specific to grade level and content to hone up on your stat skills. So those were my favorites, and uh, thanks for having me on tonight so I could share them. Hi, I'm Sharon Vestal. Um, I am a math teacher educator at South Dakota State University in Brookings, South Dakota. And I, when I go to these conferences, I tend to look at sessions that I can bring back to my pre-service teachers and the classes I teach with them. And specifically, <laughs> this time I was looking at equity sessions. And um, I guess you might ask, well, why do I, I mean, we all need to talk about equity more, but I especially think as a teacher educator, we have to spend more time with our students discussing equity. And, um, one of the reasons I guess um, it's important to me is because I am in a university in the upper Midwest rural and my students are all white. And so they don't have a perspective, I don't think, and they need to have that perspective. So we have conversations about that. And so I, I like to attend these sessions and bring things back. So as Raymond mentioned, um, Jose Wilson was the opening session and it was amazing. Um, one of the, th I mean, he, he did math in the session, but a lot of it was focused on equity and focusing on, you know, basically treating our students with respect and building those relationships, which is one thing as a teacher educator, I consistently <laughs> focus on with them building relationships. You have to build relationships before you can do a good job teaching. So um, he started by talking about dividing fractions and it really kind of had like made me think about it a little bit differently. Um, Cause we always, you know, we, if we have two fractions and we're dividing them, we multiply by the re or we flip and multiply, right? Well, he said, no, let's not do it that way. So he said, okay. Um, what if we, so the traditional method is on the um, left where we flip and multiply. And on the right um, is what he calls direct division where he um, transforms five eighths into 10 sixteenths. So it has the same denominator as um, the fraction you're dividing by. And then he basically says you let's see, take 16 divided by 16 and you get one. And that's in the denominator. In the numerator, you take 10 divided by three and you get 10 thirds. And then we convert the improper fraction 10 thirds, we get three and a third. And I thought, wow, that's actually makes more sense to me. And, you know, 
it kind of is good because when we talk about adding and subtracting fractions, we focus on common denominators. But then it seems like when we get into dividing, we don't talk about that anymore and maybe we should. So, and also made me think a little bit when I thought about it as um, um, 10 sixteenths divided by three sixteenths. In my head, I was thinking, okay, so if I have 10 sixteenths and I want to divide it into groups of three sixteenths, how many groups will I have? Well, I'll have three groups. That gets me to nine sixteenths, but then I have part of a group left. In fact, one third of a group. And so it's three and a third. So I like the idea of doing this because it really um, emphasizes understanding. And it also kind of makes them think about division in the same way they learned it when they just, when they didn't have fractions, when they just had objects. So um, I think that was um, just really interesting to me because I hadn't really ever thought about it that way. So, you know, you learn something new every day. Um, now his title of his presentation was Unions, Intersections, and Complements. And so of course we need to know some set theory. And so he had this definition on the board and talking about the universal set is a set of all things. And, um, you know, and basically in our classrooms, he said, we need to be teaching to the universal set to everyone, um, which, you know, is true. And, you know, it's easier said than done, but that's how we should view things. Um, so um, he talked about union means we're getting closer to the universal set. And the more inclusive um, I can be for all the kids, the closer I get. So intersecting, um, we're excluding and complementing, complement, we're actually just completely ignoring people in our classroom. So you can't, you can't teach math that way. And um, he talked about using history of mathematics to teach mathematics and particularly for students of color, because when we, when you see history of math in books, it's a lot of white men. And it's kind of interesting because I teach the history of math class um, at SDSU. And um, every Friday I have students present a mathematician and I made a rule last that started last year. I'm like, okay, you cannot do a white male. That is not not going to let you do that. You have to find somebody that's diverse. And this um, semester, I had a student from Africa, and he actually talked about a couple mathematicians from his um, home country that I hadn't heard of. So it was just kind of cool that you. I mean, for that student, it was important to him that I open that up to, okay, we're not going to talk about, because everybody talks about the standard white mathematicians, but I want to learn about somebody new. And so he was, that student was particularly excited about presenting this. And so I, I thought, okay, that's a good example of being culturally responsive in your teaching. Um, he talked about, um, you know, learning loss. Um, you know, that's a big thing that is conversation this year with the pandemic, that's learning loss. And he said, you know, brown and black students have had learning loss for a lot of years because of how they've been taught. And why are we so, you know, and I hadn't really thought about it that way, which was really powerful to me. Um, he, the one thing I think my favorite thing he said was if students can't trust us with our hearts, 
then they're not generally going to trust us with their minds. And again, goes back to building relationships. And that is one thing that our program here emphasizes with our pre-service teachers. And um, not only do we emphasize it, we actually do it. We model that. We have amazing relationships with our pre-service teachers. Um, the second session that I actually went to was an on-demand session, and it was on the detracking in the San Francisco School District. And I watched this with my students in my Technology for Math Educators class because, again, they're all white. They don't, they've actually probably been tracked their entire lives. They're smart kids. They benefited from, I'll quote, benefited from tracking. I'll put that in quotes. Um, and, you know, they needed to see what can happen if we don't do that. And so um, it was kind of um, interesting because it talks about, you know, catalyzing change, um, recommends detracking students. We also need to detract teachers. So in the San Francisco Unified School District, Sixth graders take sixth grade math, seventh graders take seventh grade math, and eighth graders take eighth grade math, and the ninth graders take algebra one. And so if a student wants to end up taking AP calculus in high school, then at some point in their high school career, they're gonna have to accelerate, meaning they're gonna have to take two math classes in a year. Oh, they also do offer some in the summer, so they could do that as well. But typically, um, and really it's interesting, they comment on AP Calc is the only high school math class that you have to actually be accelerated to take. Um, so, um, I don't know, it's just, um, when they, here's some data where they look, um, the blue is the class of 2017, and the orange is the current class, I believe of 2021, and, the bars represent the percentage of students who have completed three years of high school math by the with D's or better by the end of their um, junior year or third year of high school. And you can see an upward trend that that has improved in all. Um, it's proved, I don't know, there's a dip for 2018, but the dip occurs in more than one um, ethnic group. So I assume there was something strange happening, but African-Americans, you can see an actual fairly good increase. Um, same with Latina. Um, Chinese, it's about, it's not huge, but, um, and white students, there's even a slight increase. So, I mean, Detracking has been good for everyone in their district. Um, here is, um, okay, so on the upper left is the calculus enrollment by ethnicity pie chart. Um, and um, that's in 2016-2017. On the bottom middle, it's that same group but 20, um, this current year, 2020, 2021. And the upper right circle represents the breakdown of students in their district. And so obviously the goal would be to make the calculus enrollment match 
the upper right circle in terms of ethnicities. Now, one thing they commented on is they're not necessarily broken down in the same exact categories. So that makes it a little confusing and they try to use the same colors here, but you can see they still have work to do and they're very cognizant of that. And they talk about, you know, how they have work to do, but um, they have made progress, which is good. Um, um, the other thing though, that they talked about when they talked about enrollment AP math, um, you can see that the total AP math enrollment from 2016, 2017 to 20, it's increased by, well, not quite 200 people. But what you see in 2018, 2019 in particular, there's a huge decrease in calculus, but that's taken up with the increase in statistics. And this kind of goes along with what Raymond was talking about in terms of, honestly, I'm not sure AP calculus should be the end class for most high school students. Um, I think some of them will be better served by taking AP stats. And so you can see that that's, that number of students taking AP stats is, you know, it's a little over 700 now steadily. Um, but I, I'm not sure AP Calc is, honestly, as a Calc teacher, I'd probably rather have a student in my class who has never seen Calc and has a good foundation in um, algebra and trigonometry than having a student who's taken AP Calc and thinks they may know it they don't necessarily. <laughs> um, and they talked about, you know, in an equitable system, you know, all students can have need to have access to rigorous math pathways. Um, and all the math classes should have diversity that's representative of the school system. And they feel like where they need to work right now um, is curriculum, coaching, professional development, and policy. And I think, you know, almost all districts probably um, could say that same thing, but um, I I am very excited that they did detracking and that they are a model of that for people across the country. And I'd like to see it catch on a lot more. Um, you know, we cannot accept our responsibilities. Um, we have to, you know, understand that math education does play a role in solving these problems. And so we need to, um, we need to do our part to take care of that. Um, here's some detracking resources that they brought up at the end. Again, you have these on your handouts. Um, I don't know how many of you were able to attend the Ignite session um, on Friday night. I think it was April 30th. Um, it, was, it was the last day of class for me. And I can tell you right now, it was a very fun way to spend my Friday evening because there were some amazing speakers. Um, and I'm just gonna talk a little bit about what each one, each one of them had a kind of a special message. Um, so Patricia Vandenberg, um, she, hers was called Take the First Step. And she talked about, um, again, this whole idea of building relationships with students. Um, you know, we, we focus a lot on these policies and procedures, and this is how we're going to not take late assignments and we're not going to do this. And in the process of that, are we hurting our students in some cases? Like, is there a student, um, that just, you know, should we 
kind of forgive that policy. Um, and her one of the things she ended with was a quote by Rita Pearson, kids don't learn from people they don't like. Um, Jennifer Bay Williams um, related it to horse racing and they're off and it happened to be right before the Kentucky Derby. So it was kind of good timing. Um, she talked about students who start behind often stay behind. And instead of focusing on what students need immediately, we need to focus on the big picture and what they need in the long run. Um, she talked about the three things that, that we should not, um, that we need to stay away from in math. And speed is not the way to learn math facts. Competition has a negative impact on students and math talent is not genetic. So I definitely agree with her on all of those. Um, Kendall Brown talked about African mathematical legacy and I was really excited because again, he brought history of math into his conversation. And you know, why aren't we mentioning more African mathematicians when we're teaching mathematics? And he, he talked about the Ishango bone and the ancient Egyptians who had this base 10 number system and they had their own systems of measurement. And we need to acknowledge the contributions that those um, cultures made to um, mathematics throughout history. Um, he talked about, you know, Benjamin Banneker and Albert Francis Cox was the first African-American to earn a PhD in math. And Euphemia Lofton Hayes was the first female African-American to earn a PhD in math. And it's interesting because those are two mathematicians that my students talked about during history of math this year. So um, I am learning every day. Um, Nanette Johnson, hers was titled Failing to Learn. And she talked about failing, but she didn't mean that we were failing. She meant that the only way to learn is if we um, actually, you know, you learn when you make a mistake. Um, and you sometimes need to feel uncomfortable and you need to be outside your comfort zone. And we need to make our students okay with making mistakes. And, but we can't just let them make mistakes. We have to provide the support to get them to understand where they went wrong. Um, Chris Luzniak, um, non-binary non math. Um, and it was interesting to me because he talked about his father and he said, you know, my dad is sort of this binary thinker. It's either right or wrong. And he goes, sometimes I think we teach math that way, but isn't there a gray area? So we need to be more about, you know, letting students solve problems their own ways. Um, you know, we can't let students think they're a math person or not a math person. Um, Esther Song, Making Space in Math Class. She talked about, um, she was having, she had this great idea for math. My, in, you know, I got this function machine which is math class and my inputs are my students, my kids who don't know math and my output are the kids who know math. And she said, I had this great, you know, image in my head of what my classroom's gonna look like, but it didn't work. So she went in and she put them in a, a circle and they had a talking piece and they went around and they didn't just talk about mathematics. They talked about things that were going on in their lives. And so it was pretty, um, she said, once she had done that with them, they were more apt to do work for her and do the math because Again, building relationships. Catherine Yeh, moment to movement. Um, you know, we've put a lot, the pandemic has displayed a lot of inequities that, you know, we, and, and maybe if there's one good thing that's come out of the pandemic, it's that we have 
maybe acknowledge these inequities more than we would have before the pandemic. And um, specifically, um, Kathy had this transformative justice in math ed. She had this slide, which I thought was amazing. Um, and I think it's something you guys might, you know, these are the eight things we can do to help us be transformative. And um, the session ended with Marion Dingle and Hema Kodai, who, um, you know, they're both amazing people. And I don't know, their session was just so personal and so intimate. And um, it just talked about, you know, where they had not ever met until NCTM 2019 in San Diego. So I don't know that whoever got them to meet, that's those people are you know, they need a gold medal for that because that was amazing. Um, they talked about social emotional learning and um, how we, we need, and again, it's that relationship building, but we need to acknowledge the social emotional part of mathematics. And um, they're ended with um, words from Octavia Butler, all that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. I don't know, if you haven't seen that session, definitely watch it. Oh, can you hear me now though, Raymond? I can hear you. Okay, yeah, I, I just moved my mouse and somehow I got kicked out of the webinar and had to come back in really quickly. Um, but I'm gonna be looking at using CODAP with my um, students. Um, so there was two sessions that I went to that, that focused on CODAP and in the handouts, if you click on the handouts at the top of your tab um, for the chat, you'll see that there's a handout called CODAP Simulations and CTM Talk. That was uh, one of the sessions I attended on CODAP. Um, and it's a little more high level um, than what I would be having my statistics students do initially uh, with simulations. But um, I do do I do have my students do simulations a little bit, um, but I might have them do more um, with CODAP in the future. Um, I highly recommend that you click on that handout and download it for yourself. There's links to video tutorials that you can take a look at. Um, later on. He also talked about StatKey, which is a website that I'm familiar with. But the drawback of StatKey is you can't really save your files, um, whereas in CODAP, you can save your files. Um, and then I watched an on-demand session that was Becoming Data Detectives with CODAP in the Big Data World. It was on-demand session 113, led by Rick Hudson. And he talked about the fact that statistical thinking is an imperative. And I know this has already been mentioned earlier tonight. Um, there was a quote that he talked about from Trina Wilkerson, who is the current NCTM president. She said um, in a keynote address in 2020 that every individual must learn to synthesize data to support decision-making, make sense of our world and prepare for the future. Um, and I, that's definitely true. So the question is how can this be done? in pre-K-12 setting. Um, I know Raymond already mentioned the Gazy 2 report and I actually just put a link into the chat for that report. It is free to download. Um, and it was published by the American Statistical Association in 2020 with a goal of statistical literacy for all students. Um, I highly recommend downloading that report and taking a look at it so you can understand 
how statistical literacy can be achievable for all students in pre-K-12. And then he focused on CODAP, this common online data analysis platform. Um, I'll put the link for that in the chat as well. Um, it is a, as I said, free web-based data science tool and it can be used by students in grades six through 14. And so I'm gonna finish up by sharing my screen and just showing you um, a little bit of what CODAP can do. Uh, let's see here, here we go. So I just wanna confirm that um, everybody can see uh, this CODAP. If you want to say yes, and just let me know. Uh, we don't do a lot of screen sharing. Uh, just want to make sure that it's there. All right, hopefully you can see that. So I'm just going to show you um, this one little piece over here um, on Tricode app. And I'm going to open documents that currently exist. So they have some large data sets in there that already exist. All right, and now I'm gonna ask you a question in the chat. Do we wanna look at data on mammals or data on roller coasters? Whichever choice I see more of in the chat is what we'll do. Roller coasters or mammals, I don't care which one we look at. In the chat, which one would you prefer? All right, I see more roller coasters and um, that's what we're gonna look at. But notice you can also upload um, items from Google Drive or a local file. If it's a CSV file, you can upload that directly as well. So we're gonna take a look at this roller coaster data set. Um, and notice there's some, some questions over here on the right that you can use to get started if you wish. I'm just gonna drag those off to the side. Um, we have a total of uh, 157 roller coasters in here. And if you wanna see what the attributes are, we can just open this up. Notice it's a fairly large data set uh, talking about the type of coaster, whether it's wooden or steel, sit down or stand up, year it was opened, top speed, maximum height. So we've got some quantitative variables and some categorical variables here. Let's take a look at uh, what this does up here. Switch to case card view. Well, we can see um, individual individual uh, roller coasters within this. Dorney Park, I've actually, that is near my house. Lee, I don't think we're seeing anything change on the screen. Okay, I am changing things, um, so I'm not sure what's going on there. Sorry. Oh, you know what? I think it's because I need to change a new tab. I should have actually shared the entire screen. So let's try this. There we go. Thank you for letting me know that. Now, can you see the roller coaster data? You see a scatter plot here? I believe. Um, I don't see, oh, loading. There we go. Okay, thank you for letting me know that. I, I clicked on sharing a tab and uh, I should have done sharing my whole screen on that. All right, excellent. So we've got all these different attributes here, some categorical, some quantitative. And as I said, if we click over here on the left, we can see um, individual uh, cases. Let me close this back up for a second and let's create some graphs. So the easiest way to create a graph is just to drag it or click it. Um, 
And I am going to, let's see, which attribute? Let's see if there's a relationship between, let's just take a look at top speed. So there's a dot plot for top speed. Um, and notice, I'll make this a little bit bigger here. Notice that um, we can do things like plot the mean. And so there's the mean. We can plot the median. And we got the median of 56 0.5. We can even put a box plot above this if we want. And one thing that's really cool about the box plot is if you highlight this here, you can see these the it highlights down underneath the coasters that are in that upper quartile between the median and the third quartile, between the first quartile and the median, and in the lower quartile. And if you mouse over it, you can see the median and the actual values for the, the quartiles, which is nice. Um, and maybe this 120 is an outlier. All right, we can see if that's an outlier. Yes, we've got a couple outliers on both the upper end and lower end. But one thing that I think is really interesting about this is we can actually, uh, let's take a categorical variable and put that over top. Like I'm wondering like where wooden roller coasters would fall on this. So I'm gonna take a uh, type and drag it on the uh, horizontally here on top of this whole thing. All right, so I can see that the wooden roller coasters are more on the left side, that they're slower, and the top speed um, is faster for the steel roller coasters. Um, I could also, if I wanted to, have dragged the attribute here. Let me undo this, Control-Z or Command-Z to undo that. Let's drag that attribute instead of on top of the dot plot, drag it on the left side here. And then we have um, some comparative dot plots, although I'm not quite sure why the coloring is different here. Let's try that again from the top, just briefly here. So let's do maximum height. I think it's because I had selected some earlier. You can bend these as well which is interesting to look, take a look at. So there's a, there's a lot of really interesting things you can do here. Scatter plots, you can do scatter plots as well. Um, is there a relationship between height and speed? Maximum height and speed. Or actually let's do drop height and maximum height. And you can add um, a least squares regression line or movable line if you want, and add the squared residuals, trying to make the sum of those squares as small as possible. So there's just a lot of um, really easy things for the students to do with this. Um, and one thing I really like about the least squares regression line is it has the units here. Um, although feet per foot isn't the best one to have. Let's do, um, let's do top speed instead and just trade that out. So miles per hour per foot. So it's just a really easy tool um, to use and I am pretty sure I'm gonna be using this with my students. One last thing that is neat is that you can actually share this um, with your students, right? Enable sharing and you get a hyperlink then that you can give to your students. And um, I'm gonna copy this link once it gets generated and I'll post it in the chat. 
course, earlier when I did this, uh, it took like two seconds to generate it. And I'm not sure, so sure why it's so slow to generate it now. Um, the other thing you can do, I, I want to point out, um, is you can uh, import um, and basically just drag and drop or search for a file. It has to be a CSV file, uh, but you can do that as well. So there is a lot that you can do here. Um, and you can save this. Um, and then you can, as I said, just open it back up. Uh, you cannot save it um, if you're using StatKey, which was one of the other web resources that was mentioned. But this is free, has a lot of cool data sets that are there, um, allowing students to do a lot of data analysis on their own. So I, I would recommend downloading the handout so that you can definitely see all the different things that can be done with CODAP, because I think it's a really easy tool for students to use to explore data analysis. All right, and that is all for my presentation. If you have any questions uh, and you haven't typed them in the chat, please feel free to type those into the chat. Um, and I'd like to uh, thank all of our presenters tonight. And I thank, thank you, Annie, thank you, Raymond, thank you, Sharon, for sharing. And everyone in attendance or watching this on the video later, thank you for joining us. Next week, uh, we are, or actually, it's not next week, it's in two weeks on June 1st. Uh, we're going to be having Teresa Wills back. Uh, Teresa Wills is going to be talking about teaching math simultaneously to in-person and virtual students. Um, hopefully, uh, we won't have to do that much again after this school year, but you never know. Um, so it's good to be prepared to learn how to do that. So thank you very much for being here tonight. I look forward to seeing all of you at our next webinar. So long, everyone.